Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And if you are new with us, there should be a Bible close to you. And if you go to page 960, you're going to find Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be camping out today, taking a look at verses 10 through 17. And (laughs) this is going to, well, this is before my time even. There's only maybe a few people that remember so Mick Jagger, with his uh, big lips and his, his uh, really sadly said this, and famously said, I can't find, and he didn't use proper grammar though, did he? He, he said, I can't find no satisfaction, right? <laughs> that those terrible grammar lyrics put the Rolling Stones on the map. Uh, they, they were really not popular until that song came around, and it was the it wasn't just the lyrics, it, the, the song was pretty upbeat and, and uh, catchy, but the lyrics caught the attention of a generation and connected with the generation that was having a hard time finding satisfaction. They didn't like the status quo, and I still think today that those same words reign true in our generation. And in fact, I think if Solomon were here today from the Old Testament, he would probably say that we have a generation like no other that is trying to catch the wind everywhere, right? We try to find our, our joy, our satisfaction in all kinds of things, whether it's social media or our job or relationships or fake relationships. There are all sorts of things that we do that are like trying to catch the wind when it comes to satisfaction. And I think, no, I know that one of the biggest lies that Satan feeds us that we buy into is that God is less satisfying than this world. That God is less satisfying. There's things in this world that are more satisfying than God. And think about the serpent back in the garden with Adam and Eve. How does he tempt Eve with that food? And he, he says, look at this fruit. It's desirable to eat. You will know good and evil. You'll be like God. And so she looks at the, the fruit and she sees that it's delightful to eat and she takes a bite. And so she trusted in Satan's word more than she trusted in God's word. And this is more than just treason and disobedience that's going on. What's happening is she said in her mind that, okay, I think that this fruit can satisfy me more than God himself. And we have all fallen into that lie. You think about the curses back in Genesis 3. Think specifically about the curse to the woman. How did God curse the woman because of her treason, because she sinned and fallen and and disobeyed God? God says to the woman that I'm going to curse the two most important relationships in your life. I'm going to curse the relationship between you and your children. From the time you give birth, it will be painful. And then I'm going to curse the relationship between you and your husband. You will desire him, but he will rule over you. And he looks, at the, he looks at Adam, he looks at the man, I'm going to curse you. And how does he curse the man? He says, I'm going to curse the ground. And so that it's going to be difficult for you to work. And he reminds them that you're going to eventually be dust again. So, matter, so no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you try to achieve and be successful, you're going to end back in the same spot you started, back to dust, back in the dirt. Now let me ask you a question. In your experience... What do women, where do women tend to find or seek to find their greatest satisfaction, their identity, their joy? 
in their kids, and in their husband. That's typical. Where do men typically seek to find their greatest satisfaction, their greatest identity, their, their, uh, their joy? It's in their work and in their success. Well, the good news is that Jesus came to reverse the curse. And C.S. Lewis, he said this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was not made for this world. I was made for another. If you remember last week, Jesus sent his disciples out to share about the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is not of this world. In fact, it's a kingdom that Paul describes like this. He says, not, it's not a matter of eating or drinking. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness. So it's not a matter of things of this world. It's a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Today's story, the feeding of the 5,000, is a very common miracle. Many of us have heard this story before, but I want us to understand that this is more than just a story. This is more than just a miracle. Whenever Jesus did these miracles, he wasn't just trying to do a cool thing to impress you. He's, he's trying to teach you something. He's trying to teach his disciples something. In fact, John calls his miracles signs. Because a sign is not the thing, it's a thing that points to the thing. And if you ignore the sign, if you're, if you're driving down the road and there's a curvy road sign, if you, don't, if you just kind of blow through it and you don't pay attention to the sign, it can be dangerous. And so we ought to look at the miracles of Jesus, we ought to pay attention to them because they're trying to tell us something significant. And you see this if you look at the context of what's going on here of the feeding of the 5,000. If you remember last week, at the very end of the story last week, after the disciples had been sent out by Jesus, they did miracles, they shared the gospel, and people started to notice. Specifically, King Herod started to notice, and what did he start to ask? Who is this Jesus? And if you go to the story right after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is asking his disciples to ask the same question. He says to his disciples, and we're going to talk about this next week, who do you say I am? And so sandwiched between those two bookends is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So maybe this story has something significant to say to us about who Jesus truly is. So we're going to pray one more time, and then we're going to jump into the story. Father, We confess that there are so many things in this world that we run after and seek for joy and for satisfaction, for pleasure, for fulfillment, and we are constantly chasing the wind. And Father, I pray that you would change our desires, that you would be our treasure above everything else, that you would be our greatest desire, and that it would cause us to be great, radically generous to others for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the heart of this passage is simply this. If you're taking notes, Jesus is able to satisfy you abundantly. That's where we're headed with this. So let's pick up in verse 10. This is our setting. You get the setting of the story in the first couple of verses. So on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned of it, 
They followed him and welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. And so these 12 disciples come back from this missionary journey that they were on. If you've ever been on a mission trip, you know you come back and you're just exhausted, right? I mean, you come back and, and you, you could sleep for days. Spiritually, you're on the spiritual high, but physically, you're just done. And so Jesus recognizes that they've got some physical, they're just tired. And so he says, let's go, let's get away, let's go and rest. And so they go to this place that's out in the middle of nowhere. It's a fishing community to go and to, to rest, to just refresh to recuperate but they they don't get that rest do they the crowd finds out and they they follow Jesus because they want to see more miracles they want to they want to be healed and they want they want to see Jesus and hear from Jesus and so the the crowd follows him and if I'm a disciple I'm like Jesus can we just send them away just give us a day but Jesus doesn't do that he he welcomes them he has compassion for the crowd he welcomes them and he and he heals their disease and he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel to share about the kingdom which brings us to the conflict. The day goes on. It must have been a long day. Now the day began to wear away, verse 12. And the twelve came and they said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages in the countryside to find lodging and to get provision, for we are here in a desolate place. And so by this point, they're just done. They're, they're exhausted. And they had the audacity to go to Jesus and tell Jesus what to do. Uh, it's kind of tend to have that same mentality. When we get tired, that, that's usually the time when I'm, I get a little grumpy, and, and that's what they do. They get grumpy with Jesus. They tell, look, Jesus, send them away. They need to find food. It's getting late. They need, they need to find a place to stay. They can't all stay here. We're in, the, we're in the middle of nowhere. And so we've got the climax of the conflict in verse 13. He says, but Jesus, but he said to them, you give them something to eat. <laughs> and so they said, we, we have... No more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men. I mean, you can almost hear the disciples laughing at Jesus in this moment. I mean, are you kidding, Jesus? You want us to feed all of these people? I mean, there's just 5,000 men. That means that all their families included, maybe 10,000 plus people. You want us to feed, I mean, how much money would that cost? I know my food budget just with six kids is crazy. I can't imagine trying to feed 5,000 men plus their families. You must be joking, Jesus. He's straight face. You, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And so we see the resolution next. And he said, Jesus says to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And when he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And so you, hear, you see Jesus organize the, the disciples and get them moving, getting everybody organized into, into groups. And then he, he takes the, the little food that he has and he does this blessing. Man, I wish I could bless my food and it would multiply like that. It would save a lot in groceries. <laughs> but he blesses the food and then he breaks the loaves. I think that's an illustration or an allusion to communion. He gave them to the disciples. And I think that's significant too. He didn't just give the, the bread to the people. He gave the bread to the disciples to give to the people. 
He expected his disciples to distribute the food. They were to be his hands and feet. Now, on a side note, I want to I want to encourage you not to buy into, there's some rationalistic theology that's out there that tries to explain away the miracles of Jesus in, in rational ways. And so some people look at this story and they argue that, okay, what really happened was that Jesus just inspired the rich people that were in the crowd that had brought their, their meal with them to share with everybody else. And that's how everybody got fed. But the reality is there's no evidence in, in the scriptures that that's went down. In fact, in John, they want to make Jesus king because of this miracle. And so the evidence is this is a true miracle. Something miraculous happened here. And when you start changing the meaning of the text like that, it just diminishes who Jesus is. And so don't buy into that kind of, that kind of logic. It's not logical at all, really. And so we see the conclusion in verse 17. And they, they all ate, keyword, and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up in 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, it would be easy to read the story and conclude that the main point, what, Jesus, or what Luke is trying to communicate here, is that Jesus was going to satisfy your stomachs, that he's going to take care of your physical well-being, which God does. Okay? He, he does provide for us, but that's not the main point of this story. And a lot of people take it that way. They, they look at this and say, okay, Jesus has come to make us healthy, and he's come to make us wealthy. He's came to satisfy our stomach. And, and so you see a lot of the Christian music today is about just your felt needs and God meeting those felt needs and, and, and providing for you physically. Many have taken this story that way, but unfortunately what they're doing, they're, they're missing the, the, they're reading the signs wrong. You always need to interpret Scripture from Scripture. And so I think in, in a story like this, by the way, this story is the only miracle other than the resurrection that occurs in all four Gospels. And so when you've got a story like this that's in other Gospels, it's good to look at the other accounts and, and you learn more that way. And so if you go to John chapter 6, and I'm not going to read it word for word, but there's an important lesson that you learn from John's account that you don't quite get from Luke's account. And so in John's account, after he feeds the 5,000, the crowd continues to follow Jesus because they want more bread, right? And Jesus rebukes them because all they really wanted was the bread. And so that tells you right away that this story is not about God just providing for us physically. There's something more going on here. This is what Jesus says. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And then he, something, he says something very significant in verse 35, John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will no longer hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, Jesus came into the world not to give bread, but to be bread. And he will give bread. Okay, I don't want to dismiss that. He does provide for us. We should trust him and trust that he will provide. But sometimes, you know what, he, he provides less for us at times so that we rely on him more. We go through seasons in our life where we have less so that we have to rely on him more. And so don't think that this story is about him giving to us physically abundantly. He wants to satisfy us, but it's much deeper than that. 
He didn't come to simply be useful. He came to be precious to us. He didn't come to simply assist you in meeting some worldly desire. He came to change your desires, to make it so that he would be your number one desire. And so I want to make this point, and I think this is really important. Your desires are not the issue. Your joy, you wanting to be joyful is not the issue. You wanting to be satisfied is not the issue. God wired you to want to be satisfied, to want to, he wired you to want to seek out joy. That's not the problem. In fact, the Bible doesn't just permit joy, it commands you to be joyful. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. One of the biggest differences between a believer and a non-believer is where they find that satisfaction and where they find that joy. Do they find it in the world? Jesus rebukes the crowd because they were seeking for their satisfaction in the gifts of God rather than God himself. He says, I'm the only bread that's going to ultimately satisfy your soul. Everything else you seek for is only going to make you hangry. Okay, you know what hangry is, right? It's when you're so hungry, you just get angry. I know guys get that. I get that way often. My kids definitely get that way. And that's what seeking after all the wrong things is going to make you. You're just going to get hangry. When we chase after the wind, that's what Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he, he talks about that. He, he says that, look, if you... If you seek to find your joy and your fulfillment, your satisfaction with anything that's under the sun, is how he puts it. It's like chasing after the wind. It's pointless. It's meaningless. It's like trying to convince a cat that, that, that a mouse is its best friend or a mouse that a cat is its best friend. It, it just doesn't work. And so, guys, look, if you're, li- if you're trying to find your satisfaction in your job and in success, I mean, it doesn't matter how many promotions you get. It doesn't matter how, many, how much money you make or how much stuff you can buy. It will never satisfy. It doesn't matter how hard you work because in the end, where do you end up anyhow? Back in the dirt. You can't take any of the toys with you. Ladies, if you're trying to find your satisfaction in your husband or in your kids, they're going to let you down. Ultimately, they're not going to satisfy you. And your, your kids, listen, your kids, they don't need a perfect parent. They need a, they need a parent who recognizes that they're a sinner in need of a Savior that's able to point them to the perfect parent. And so don't find your, sat- th- those are chasing after the wind. Kids, if you're trying to find your satisfaction in video games or social media, it will never be enough. You will never have enough friends on Facebook or Instagram. You will never have enough likes to satisfy you. It's chasing after the wind. And ultimately, those things, the more you look at screens, I've seen this in my own kids, the more it just it builds selfishness in your heart is what it does. Chasing after the wind. St- if you're a student and you're striving after grades, getting, I mean, 4.0, God is not impressed with your 4.0, I promise you that. And, and seeking after those, those grades at the end of the day is like chasing the wind. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe you're doing it because you, like, you want to get a good job so that you can go to college and, and make money. 
Um, maybe, maybe you're doing it to impress your teacher or your parents or just prove it to yourself. But I'm telling you, it's chasing after the wind. No matter, uh, no matter what it is, if, if you're performing, the performance never ends. There's always another boss to impress. There's always another teacher to impress. There's always another grade or another test that's coming at you. It'll never, ever end. It's chasing after the wind. Again, the good news, though, is that Jesus came to reverse the curse. He is the bread of life. Your soul can be fully satisfied. But for that to happen, you first need to be born again. That's what Jesus says. Look, look, if you want to be truly satisfied in me, if you want your desires to change, you have to trust in him for your salvation. Stop seeking after things of this world, and you need to fully rely on what he did on the cross to save you. Follow him as Lord. If you've repented of your sins, if you've not done that, if you've not repented of your sins and asked for forgiveness, don't wait because all you're doing with your whole life is, is chasing after the wind. Peter wrote, when you believe in Jesus, you will rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So what when you're born again, when you've, tr- when you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a capacity that is put in your heart that is greater than you can ever imagine for joy, for satisfaction that you've never had before. The, his beauty, his, his greatness, it begins to thrill your soul as you feel the weight of your sins fade away as they're forgiven. Now, for many of us sitting in this room, and this is, maybe this is you, you're sitting here and you're saying, look, I, I, I've trusted in Christ. I, I know Jesus is my Savior, but this is not my experience, at least not right now. My experience is not that I find all my satisfaction in Jesus, and I am just joyful no matter what the circumstances are. And maybe for you, that, that's, that's just kind of how you're wired. The, there are certain people, in fact, Martin Lloyd Jones, Jones talks about this in his classic book, Spiritual Depression. He talks about ju- there's just some people that are just kind of wired to be more sad in their, in their, in their life. And, and so maybe that is you. Or maybe right now you're just going through a season where life is hard. Life is just challenging. And, and you're just struggling to make ends meet. And it's hard. And so there are good reasons that Christians are not always happy. But I think for the majority of Christians that are, are just struggling, and that are, are, are not finding any kind of joy in life. It's because they've got their, their feet in two different worlds. They've got one eye on heaven, but they've got one eye on earth. And while they claim the name of Jesus as their Savior, they're still looking for satisfaction and, and joy and fulfillment in this world. And because you're on that fence, you're just not finding joy. And if you do, it's fleeting. And so I would encourage, if that's, if that's you and that's your heart right now, get, get off the fence. Trust fully in Jesus for your satisfaction. He is the only one that can fully satisfy your soul. It's not going to be things of this world. And so if, if that is you, I, I want to ask a really important question. So how do you do? How do you grow in satisfaction for Jesus? What does that even look like? I, w- I would commend you, first of all, pray. We don't, none of us naturally find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus, and so it's a supernatural, uh, the new birth is a supernatural thing that happens to you. 
Sanctification, as you grow to, to enjoy Christ more, that is a supernatural thing that happens in us. You can't just like try harder. God's got to do something in you. And so spend time praying that God would change your desire. I pray every day that God, would you make, would you make my greatest treasure, you, above everything else in this world, would you make you my greatest treasure? That should be a prayer that is on our lips constantly, day and night. God, make you my greatest treasure above everything else in this world. So I would, number one, if you want to grow in your satisfaction in Jesus, pray. Number two, you've got to spend time getting to know him. I mean, think about if there's anything, if you're married and your spouse is into something that you're, maybe you weren't really into when you first, maybe it's football, okay? Maybe your wife that had to grow to enjoy football. And some of you have and some of you haven't. Any wives in here enjoy football? You had to kind of grow into it maybe a little bit, some of you? No, you just loved it right from the very beginning. Well, there, maybe, okay, maybe another example would be maybe your wife like is into classical music or astronomy or, or something that you just aren't on the same page. I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, maybe there's something. But to grow and it really enjoy, I mean, you can, can kind of like bear it for a while, but that's really not enjoyable to hang out with your spouse if you're just kind of doing it because you have to, Right? But if you want to grow to really enjoy something, whether it's classical music or football or whatever it is, you've got to spend time getting to know whatever that is. You you have to listen to the classical music. You've got to watch the football, learn the rules, okay? Get the backstory of the players, figure out ways to start to enjoy it. Same thing is with God, with Jesus. If you you don't know Jesus, how how are you going to fall in love with him? How are you going to fall in love with somebody you don't know? How can you trust somebody that you don't really know? And so you've got to spend time studying. I mean, his word is precious. It should be precious to us because in there we see the character of God. We see the promises of God. We see the works of God. And so gaze at the word of God over and over, and eventually your heart will start to to grow in its capacity to enjoy Christ. Gaze at the creation, and not, not just to enjoy the creation, but allow it to point upward towards heaven and just be amazed at what God has done, how creative he is. And then also I would encourage you to spend time around people who find their joy and their satisfaction in Christ. I think for me that's one of the greatest things that spurs me on to greater joy is when I spend time with other people that are just happy in Christ. That they, they just love Jesus and they're, they're going to talk about Jesus. They love to play Christian music and, and listen and worship. And they're just, they're, they're a constant encouragement. Spend time around those who are, are already finding joy. And it, joy is infectious. I mean, we lo- I love being around people that are joyful because it makes me joyful. I would have loved to have been around David. I mean, back in the Old Testament, the Psalms, when when I'm really struggling to find my joy in Christ, the Psalms are where I go. Because I I look at David, I I just, I would love to be around David as he's writing these Psalms. Psalm 16, 2, he says, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my portion in the land of the living. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you want to find joy in Christ, spend time gazing 
at the word. Look at David and, and, and just absorb how much he enjoyed Christ. Psalm, Psalm 119 is all, I mean, it's just a huge song about how much he enjoyed God's word and, and just loves this love letter that he sent us. We need to recognize and we need, me to, we need to be reminded over and over and over and over that the, the promises of God are huge. And, and the promises of this world pale in comparison to the promises of God. There, there really is no comparison. And so I, I want to talk about the fruit of a satisfied soul. What ha- when, when you find your soul, when your soul is fully satisfied by, by Christ, I mean, if you're a believer, maybe you've had moments like that where it's like nothing else matters in your life because Christ is everything. I mean, he's, he's just f- overwhelming you with his presence. You feel his presence. You know that he loves you and you, you know that he cares for you, that he's going to provide and you trust him. And he's just kind of swept you away, and you've had maybe you've had moments like that. And what happens in those moments? It's better than like drugs, because drugs they just kind of numb you to the world. But when you've been swept away by Jesus, what it does is it changes your desire and it creates in you a desire to give it away, also, not just to be numb to the world, but to to it, this is what it does because it creates in you a desire to share the treasure that you found. It creates in you a radical generosity is what happens. When you're fully satisfied by Jesus, think about the story of Zacchaeus. Okay, everybody knows the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man climbed up in the sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? And so Zacchaeus, before his encounter with Jesus, who was he? He was a tax collector and he was filthy rich because he stole from his Jewish brothers. He was corrupt, and so he was filthy rich. Nobody liked him, though. And he, he encounters Jesus, and what happens? What does he do next? He gives away half of what he owns, and he goes and he finds the people that he had done wrong, and he repays them fourfold because he recognized the gift that he had in Jesus, and it caused him to be radically generous. And the story today, the disciples were willing to give away all of their food. Okay, that's, that's all the provisions they had because they trusted in the word of Jesus, that Jesus would somehow satisfy them, that Jesus would, would somehow provide for them. So they were willing to give everything they had away. And what does Jesus do? He, he provides for them. He gives them an abundance, in fact. Not, not more than they needed physically. There's 12 baskets left over, if you remember. There's 12 disciples. And so there was enough for them to have and the rest of the crowd. And so that's significant, that we, we ought to trust that, that God is going to provide us more than we need. Jesus provides more than enough for them. And, and that's a really important lesson for us. Because some of you walk in this room and you, you think, gosh, I have, I've got nothing to give. I, I've got, I mean, I'm, I'm poor. I have, I have no money. I've got no skills. I, I've got no time. But if you've got Jesus, you've got more resources than you can ever imagine. 2 Corinthians 8, 2, Paul, he boasts about the Macedonians, and he says this, it's really interesting. He says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so it wasn't that their affliction was gone, it wasn't that their poverty was gone, but they had so much joy in Christ, they were, generous, they were radically generous because of that. 
See, when you are fully satisfied in Christ, the things of this world become gifts to give away rather than treasures to protect. Let me say that again. When you are fully satisfied in Christ, the things of this world become gifts to give away rather than treasures to protect. As you grow as a Christian and as you grow to find your satisfaction in Christ, and I've seen this over and over. This is one of my favorite parts about being a pastor because I get to see this. It's kind of like being, a, if, you, if you're a teacher or if you're a parent and you see like a, a child learn something new and that light bulb goes on, you've experienced that before. That was one of my favorite, like when I was a teacher, that was my favorite thing is just watching the light bulb go on. As a pastor, one of the light bulbs that I love seeing flipped on in believers is when they, they go from being a consumer to a giver in church. When, when they see Christ as all satisfying, that the things of this world become gifts to give away rather than treasures to keep. It's like a light bulb goes off in their head that God switches it on. And, and, and you, you see this in the early church, right? You think back to Acts chapter 2. When they got together, when they gathered as a church, they were not going to, to, to see how much they could be fed. They weren't going to their, their church gathering to, to figure out, okay, what can I get from this? That's the consumer mentality that is all over America, but you don't see it in the New Testament church at all. Instead, when they got together, what did they do? They came together and they said, okay, how can I leverage the gifts that God has given me, the, the money that God has given me, because it's his money anyhow, how can I leverage these things for our church family? And they shared everything. How can I, am, am I looking at others more highly than I look at myself. That was their mentality because the light had been switched on because they had put their satisfaction, they had found their satisfaction fully in Christ. And so because of that, it caused them to be radically generous. The, the book that we're reading in our, in our Sunday morning Bible study by Francis Chan, the, the Letters to the Church, in the first chapter, he uses this illustration that I, I think is really, really helpful. He talks, and I think it's this paradigm shift that he's talking about, that within the church that we, we need to see this more and more, where, where people are going from being a consumer to being a giver. And he says it, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like when you first become a believer, and maybe you've heard the gospel, and, and unfortunately churches preach it this way, way too often. What, look, look, the gospel is a free gift, and it, it means for you that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. But we go far too, we go way too far with that personal part. And so he, he points out, it's kind of like getting a, a pair of ice skates, right? You get this pair of ice skates, and man, you, you just go to the ice rink, and, and you just do all a bunch of tricks and you're so excited, and, and you're learning all these spins and these jumps and these moves, but you're doing it all by yourself. And that's a lot of churches today. They, we come in, and we want the free gift of the gospel, but we would just want to play by ourselves and, and enjoy these skates. But what Francis Chan points out is it's, what we need is not just people that are, know how to ice skate. We need, we need people that recognize that those skates that were given to you are really to put you on a hockey team that is fighting for the championship. That that's what we're given the gospel for. It's not just so that we can have this free gift to enjoy by ourselves, but it's so that we can come together as a, as a church family and be on the same team, that we've got a mission together 
And when you do that, you become radically generous. And I would challenge you guys. I mean, I, I think it's important that, that you use your gifts in the church, that you find where you're passionate and you serve in that area. But I would also challenge you to find an area in the church to serve that nobody else wants to serve. I mean, go and find, I think that's healthy. For you, that's, that's radical generosity to, to go and to, to serve in the, in the nursery or Mercy Kids or cleaning or, or, I mean, coming and doing the toilets, serving food. I mean, those kind of things, those are what make a church beautiful and wonderful. And when visitors come in and they see everybody working and doing the ugly and the dirty jobs together and, in, and enjoying those things as much as they enjoy the, the things that are up on stage or the the, the, the things that, that are easy to you. That's what makes a, a church thrive. I mean, Christ gives us the best example of this principle, doesn't he? I mean, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, Jesus came down from heaven to, to give us a gift that we will never be able to repay him. He has given us an abundance that should satisfy our soul. So let me ask just a, a few final questions for you to reflect on. Ask yourself, where do I tend to find my satisfaction and joy? Where do I tend to find my satisfaction and joy? Number two, have I been a consumer or a giver? What's been my mentality? When I come into church, am I a consumer or am I, give, am I a giver? And then number three, am I just an ice skater or am I a hockey player? Let's pray. Father, Your grace is always sufficient for us, and we praise you that you have given us more than we need spiritually, that we can find our, our joy and our satisfaction in knowing Christ, and I pray that you would change our desires, that we would stop chasing after the wind, help us with our unbelief, Lord. Help us to trust you more that you can fully satisfy us. Help us to be more motivated to spend time with you, to spend time with others who find their joy in you. And that through this, you would create in us such a, genera a generosity, a radical generosity that, that would cause all of our, not just all of our physical needs to be met within this church, but our emotional and our spiritual needs to be met because you are more than enough. Help us to be a church that points one another to you. That So no matter what the circumstances are going in our life, we can say rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Help us every day to seek to find our joy and our satisfaction in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. And so communion is, again, a, a way